I will be reading from the book of John, chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. <coughs> thanks, Eugene. And Rob, thank you for leading us this morning. Sean Johnson and his family are in California today, so we were blessed with Rob's leadership. Good morning, Arcadia. It's great to see you guys. My name is Frank. If you're new here, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, uh, one little thing to take care of before we get started with uh, the message. Um, every Sunday night here in this room, uh, we have a, a group of people that uh, gather to pray for uh, the church and for Arcadia and for uh, Redemption at Large. And they spend an hour, an hour and a half uh, in here praying. And I know there may be some of you in this room that come to that on Sunday night. Uh, tonight, they will not be meeting here to pray. Instead, uh, we are all going to be going over to Camelback Bible at 6.30. Uh, there is going to be a prayer service at Camelback Bible Church, which is roughly at 40th Street in Stanford. Uh, and the prayer service is specifically going to be for children in the uh, greater Arcadia area. We're going to be lifting them up in prayer, and we're going to be doing this in partnership with something called Mentor Kids USA, uh, and it is a uh, group of churches from the Arcadia area that are getting together to do this. So we would invite you to come to that. Um, we are going to be led through a series of different prayers uh, for that, and um, I think it'll be a great time. We'll have a little bit of music and lots of prayer at that. So that's at Camelback Bible tonight at 6.30, from 6.30 till about 8 o'clock tonight. So we are in our fifth and last week of uh, this series uh, called Who Is This or Who Is It? And it's really been a series about Jesus and about basic Christian doctrines. And so we're wrapping up today. Uh, we've talked about who is this who was raised from the dead. Uh, we talked about the sinfulness of human beings. And we talked about the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. Uh, we have also talked about, uh, last week we talked about what it, exactly was it that happened on the cross why did Jesus have to die on the cross? What was behind that? And how did all of that work? Uh, and so today we're going to ask this final question, which we think is a good capstone uh, to the series. We're going to ask the question, well, how can I ultimately know or how can I ultimately find God? And I will tell you that I went through this uh, back in my mid to late 20s. I was not raised in the church. I had no idea uh, who God was or how to know him or how to find him, even though I thought for sure that I did know, and I thought for sure that I was okay, no matter what. Um, and I had a lot of conversations with people about God, how to find him, and all of that stuff. And mostly what I discovered is that I was really confused. Anybody ever been through that with God about being confused and having some of these conversations? Maybe you're a little bit like this guy, Boris Dimitrovic, and we're going to show you a video, and, and it'll show you what Boris was like. Nature incredible. And to me, nature is, the, you know, I don't know, spiders and bugs and 
and then, then big fish eating little fish, and then, then plants eating uh, plants and animals eating. Uh, it's like an enormous restaurant. That's the way I see it. Yes, but uh, but if God created it, it has to be beautiful, even if his plants not appear to us at the moment. Sonia, what if there is no God? Boris Dmitrievich, are you joking? <laughs> what if we're just a bunch of absurd people who are running around with no rhyme or reason? But if there is no God, well, then life has no meaning. Why go on living? Why not just commit suicide? Well, let's not get hysterical. I could be wrong. I'd hate to blow my brains out and then read in the papers they found something. Boris, let me show you how absurd your position is. All right, let's say that there is no God and each man is free to do exactly as he chooses. Well, well what prevents you from murdering somebody? Well, murder is immoral. Immorality is subjective. Yes, but subjectivity is objective. Not in any rational scheme of perception. Perception is irrational and implies imminence. But judgment of any system or a priori relation of phenomena exists in any rational or metaphysical or at least epistemological contradiction to an abstracted empirical concept such as being or to be or to occur in the thing itself or of the thing itself. Yeah, I've said that many times. Boris, we, we must believe in God. If I could just see a miracle, just... Just one miracle, if, if I could see a burning bush or, or the seas part or, or my Uncle Sasha pick up a check. <laughs> well, see, that was me for 27 years. I was just like Boris. I was nothing like Woody Allen. I was a lot like Boris, though. I was confused. Uh, I thought I had some things figured out, but every time s somebody would challenge me about something, uh, I would realize that I really didn't have any of my beliefs rooted in anything that I could point to that was objective. Everything was subjective. And so today we're going to go through a passage where a conversation that is uh, similar to this, substantially but not circumstantially, takes place between a professional religious person. Now, I like to call the professional religious people, I like to call them perps, P-R-P, -P, professional religious person. Uh, it's easier to say perp than it is professional religious person. There's this professional religious person, a perp, named Nicodemus, and he comes to Jesus, and he has this God conversation. And Nicodemus is one of those uh, perps who thinks that he has God all figured out and has for his entire life believed that he had God all figured out, but in Jesus, he sees an opportunity to maybe find out a little bit more about his understanding of God. And, and, and you need to understand Nicodemus' position in all of this. From the outside looking in, uh, everybody in his community would look at Nicodemus and think that he's a super religious dude, he's got God all figured out, and that God must have a special place for him. But Nicodemus knows deep within his soul and deep within his heart that he's probably still really messed up, kind of like Boris. And so he comes to Jesus because when Jesus appears on the scene and starts teaching with great authority, Nicodemus recognizes that and says, I need to go have a conversation with that guy because maybe he can answer some of my questions and, and deal with some of the doubts that I have. And so he sets out to talk to Jesus. And what results is probably the single most famous verse in the Bible, which is God helps those who help themselves, right? No, I'm kidding. It's John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him will not perish, will not be separated for eternity from God, but rather will have life eternal. And so let's go through that story. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 3. 
That's essentially where we're going to be today with one little diversion over into the book of Numbers, chapter 21. But John chapter 3, and we're just going to walk through this passage. And admittedly, we could spend three or four weeks walking through these 18 verses. Uh, so this is really a flyover today. I hope you understand that. And also, admittedly, um, there are going to be people in this room who are on different trajectories with John chapter 3. For some of you, this may be the first time you've ever gone through this, and this could be a really exciting time for you. And for some of you, this may be the hundredth time that you've gone through John chapter 3, and you might be looking for the exit right now. I would encourage you to stay where you are because it's always good to review what you already know and see if maybe God has some new stuff for you in the midst of this. And so let's get started. John chapter 3, verse 1. There was this man of the Pharisees, a perp, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, uh, I would suggest to you that perps are usually suspect. Uh, if you read through the, all the Gospels, you discover that almost every time that Jesus has an encounter with one of these perp guys, it, it, it doesn't go very well. Uh, things get a little bit testy. Jesus insults them. They insult him back. In fact, many times when they have uh, these discussions, the, the perps are looking for a way to condemn Jesus and, and set him up so that they can execute him, like in John chapter 10, which is something we looked at um, in the last couple of weeks. But, but Nicodemus is different from all of these other perps. Nicodemus is open to what Jesus has to say. He has a humble spirit and is willing to submit himself to the authority of Jesus. If you were to sum up uh, Nicodemus' attitude in one word, it would be that he is teachable. He is teachable. And I would suggest to you that in my ignorant arrogance in my 20s, I was not very teachable and not open to God, and it was only when I finally began to humble myself become teachable and open up to the possibility that there might be another way other than the way I had figured out that I become willing to listen to the potential message of Jesus in my life. That's what's happening with Nicodemus here. Verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, much has been made by the commentators about the idea that, that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. Uh, if you live by the principle, and I do, that nothing is included in, in the scriptures that isn't important for some reason. There is no detail in the scriptures that isn't important. You realize that the fact that, that uh, John tells us that Nicodemus comes at night must be important for some reason. I would buy into the school that the reason he came at night probably was because there wouldn't be any other perps around when Nicodemus went to talk to Jesus. Had there been other, other uh, professional religious people around, they might have been upset with Nicodemus because Nicodemus was just trying to actually have a civil conversation with Jesus. None of the other perps wanted to do that. They only wanted to have adversarial conversations. And so Nicodemus, I think, goes at night so that he can get Jesus kind of in a one-on-one -on -one situation without all the distraction of the other perps there trying to get at Jesus. And so that's why he comes. A and in fact, when he comes, he opens this conversation in a very pleasant and kind way. He, he hands Jesus a very big compliment. A and frankly, Jesus' response, which we'll see in just a second, is a tad abrupt. It's a bit cutting, a bit biting, and it seems like Jesus skips all of the pleasantries, all of the 
uh, normal opening and feed forward that you would find in a normal progressive conversation. And Jesus goes right for the business. In fact, if you were a communication scholar in the 21st century analyzing this conversation, you would come to the conclusion that Jesus is something known as conversationally incompetent conversationally incompetent because he's not following the natural progression of most conversations. But one of the problems with that analysis is that we are 21st century people in America and these are not 21st century people and they are certainly not in America. So they play by a little bit different rules. So here's how Jesus answered him. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see this, the kingdom of God. And that word that we translate as born again could also mean born from above. But in any event, it means there must be a second birth. You must be born again. That is a, a legitimate way of saying it. And the fact that you must be born again confuses Nicodemus as it should because he's never heard this concept before. And if you are not uh, familiar with John chapter 3 or with Christian uh, theology, it should confuse you as well because it sounds a little bit crazy. I know that when I was in my 20s and I heard for the first time that I needed to be born again, it confused me and sounded a little bit crazy to me as well. And look at how Nicodemus responds. He obviously is confused. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's saying, look at me, I'm all grown up. How can I possibly go back into my mother's womb and be born again? And if his mother was standing there, she'd be going, I'm not up for this either. Jesus, you are crazy. This isn't going to work. So obviously, he is confused. Jesus says this in verses 5 through 7. He answers, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel. Do not be confused. Do not be exasperated. Do not be surprised that I said to you, you must be born again. See, Jesus knows exactly why Nicodemus came. He's God, so he already knew that Nicodemus was going to come, and he knew why he was coming. He knew uh, why he came, uh, and even though Nicodemus is a perp, Nicodemus has a feeling. He's been watching Jesus, he's been watching what's going on, and he's got a feeling that maybe what Jesus has to say has some truth to it. And maybe his, uh, Nicodemus's understanding of who God is and how to relate to God is actually insufficient or not appropriate or off target. Or maybe it's just plain wrong. Now, all of us have moments like this in our lives. We have strongly held beliefs in, in whatever it is. Maybe they're philosophical, theological beliefs. Maybe they're a belief about a certain person or a certain uh, political party. Maybe they're a belief about a sports team. Whatever it is, we have beliefs that we have held, and they're strongly held beliefs. And then we have evidence to the contrary coming into the picture. Or we have somebody else with a different belief system coming and challenging what we already believe. And now there is anxiety and discomfort because we, these two things begin to collide. This is what's happening to Nicodemus. 
And this feeling that we have when we have one belief that's strongly held and now it's being challenged by evidence or beliefs to the contrary, this can be a very challenging, a very scary, or a very exciting time in our life, or it can be a combination of all three. It just depends. Now, hang with me. All of us have had this happen. It will, o- it will happen to us again. There is actually a term for this when this happens. It's called cognitive dissonance. Cognitive meaning thought, dissonance meaning conflict or contradiction. So cognitive dissonance occurs when you have two thoughts in your mind, both of them you believe potentially to be true, but in fact they are in conflict with each other. And so they, they, are, they are contradicting each other and they, pr- they provide this dissonance, this discomfort. And whenever this happens, one of two things, we will do one of two things when we have this cognitive dissonance. We will either make a decision to reject one of those beliefs altogether and do everything we can to just put it out of our mind, or we will create a brand new narrative that actually allows both of these contradictory thoughts to be a part of this new narrative, even though they are in conflict with each other. So let me give you an example of how this works. I I call it the example of Kevin Cobb, okay? Now, hang with me. Even if you're not an Arizona Cardinals fan, you can understand what we're talking about. For a number of years, the Arizona Cardinals had this really good quarterback. His name was what? Right, Kurt Warner, okay? And then Kurt Warner, last year, decides to retire. Now the entire Cardinals organization is in disarray. This is a quarterback league. We have to have a good quarterback. What are we going to do? And so uh, this guy named Kevin Cobb, who was on the Philadelphia Eagles, and he was a backup quarterback. He was not the starting quarterback. But he got in a few games for the Philadelphia Eagles, and he actually performed very well. And it got many people around the league to start talking about how good Kevin Cobb is as a quarterback. And he really shouldn't be a backup quarterback. And if some other team would just recognize how good Kevin Cobb is and, and get him to their team, he could be their franchise quarterback. So now we need this quarterback in Arizona. And so people start saying, get Kevin Cobb. He's available. The Philadelphia Eagles want to trade him. Do whatever you have to do to get Kevin Cobb because he's a great quarterback. And so the Cardinals did whatever they needed to do to get Kevin Cobb. We traded one of our best defensive players and a couple of draft picks, and we got Kevin Cobb. All of our problems were solved, right? We don't have any Cardinal fans in here, do we? No, the answer is no. Kevin Cobb then came in, and last year he did not have a very good year. So now all the people who were saying, get Kevin Cobb, he's a great quarterback, they have dissonance because they believe he's a great quarterback, but now we have evidence to the contrary, right? So one of two things has to happen. They either have to reject the belief that Kevin Cobb is a good quarterback, or what they have to do is create a new narrative that allows both of those beliefs to be included. And so what they've done, I, I've, you've heard this now, what people have done is say, Kevin Cobb is still a great quarterback. The problem is, it's only been a year. He's brand new to the Cardinals system. You got to give him some time. Also, he was injured for part of the year. And so we really haven't had enough time to test to see whether or not Kevin Cobb is going to be good. We still believe he's a good quarterback. We just need to give it some more time. So that's cognitive dissonance. Well, this is exactly what's happening to Nicodemus. Nicodemus has had one belief set about God for his entire life. He has believed for his whole life that the idea uh, of getting close to God and being in relationship to God is to work hard, do good deeds, clean up your act, 
uh, behave in a pious and devout way and then go around and police everybody else into doing the same thing. And Jesus comes along and says, mm, no, that is not how you get to know God. That's not how you find God. That is not how you get into a relationship with God. In fact, uh, uh, forgiveness of sin and being in relationship with God is an act of God and it is done through this second birth. And he says that in order to be saved, you need to be born of both water and of spirit. Now, there's a number of different ways that the commentators have said this could potentially be translated. I have chosen one because I believe that F.F. F. Bruce is correct in his estimation. When Jesus says you must be born first of the water, Jesus is talking about natural flesh birth. So when you come into this world physically, so I was born naturally in March of 1959. That was my water birth. And then he says second, uh, the second birth uh, subsequent to that is being born of the Spirit. The spiritual birth is the supernatural birth when the Holy Spirit comes along, opens your eyes to the truth of God, gives you a new heart, and you experience a conversion and become a follower of Jesus. My spiritual birth occurred in June of 1987. And so Nicodemus is now wrestling with this idea that there must be a water birth, which he's already had, but now he's wrestling with the fact that he needs to be born again under the spiritual birth. And understand, this is really important. Understand, Nicodemus is not there because he wants to debate and debunk Jesus. He is there because he's really open to um, Jesus and he wants some answers and he wants to deal with his dissonance. So continuing with the story, uh, uh, verse 8, Jesus says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not wh know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, the word wind in this passage is also the same word that we translate as spirit. So what Jesus is doing is a little wordplay here, and he's giving us a metaphor or a comparison or an analogy with the wind. He's saying the Spirit of God operates like the wind. Can you control the wind? I wish I could control the wind. I'm a runner, and when I go out in the morning to run and it's windy, I have to try to figure out which way the wind is blowing because the last thing I want is a headwind for most of my run. So I wish I could control the wind so that it's always at my back because then I could be a lot faster, okay? But I can't control the wind. In the same way, I can't control the Spirit of God. Nobody can control the Spirit of God. But understand, this is a new paradigm for Nicodemus. Because up until now, Nicodemus' understand, <coughs> understanding was that the perps controlled God. The perps controlled the blessings of God, the curses of God, how to know God. Everything was done through the perps. And Jesus is saying, no, no, you can't control God. God can do whatever he pleases. His spirit goes wherever he wants. So now Jesus has spoken for a few verses. Nicodemus has an answer. And his answer is this. He asks another question. How can these things be? Now, we need to understand that Nicodemus' question was not one of disbelief. He wasn't standing there going, I don't believe this, how can it be? Rather, it's one of direction. He's saying, how can this be? Meaning, help me with this, Jesus. Give me some direction. Guide me through what it is that you're trying to teach me here. Nicodemus is not scoffing at what Jesus was saying, which is what most perps would do. Rather, he wanted to know how he could have this for himself. See, nothing in Nicodemus' Judaism looked anything like this. Forgiveness just for the asking. 
Acceptance by God where you are, as you are. Love and grace and mercy because of God's character and not because of yours. In his vain effort to reach God, Nicodemus had spent his whole life working, cleaning himself up, wearing the right clothes, saying the right things, policing other, in their, policing other people in their spiritual walk, and himself trying to reach up to God and be good enough to God. But in God's love, grace, and mercy, this, in fact, is God reaching out to Nicodemus to accept him. This is a huge deal because all of us are bent towards religion. We are all bent towards this idea of cleaning ourselves up and being good enough for God when, in fact, the reality is that God reaches out to us and says, I'll take you right where you are. Just come into my kingdom. All you need to do is believe. And I know some of you might be saying, how can this be? Because you've lived your whole life that way, thinking I've got to work my way to God. I did this for years and years and years. And then I got into this relationship with Jackie, who is now my wife. She's the first Christian girl I had ever dated, at least that I knew of, okay? And I was having these conversations with her. And I said, listen, I believe that I'm just good enough that I'm going to go to heaven. And she said, based on what? And I said, well, because I'm a good person. And she said, well, how do you know that you're good enough? Now I'm scrambling because I have no idea. And I actually said to her, I said, isn't it kind of like the PGA Tour where, you know, you just, if you're just better than half of the people, you get in? Surely I'm better than average, okay? I'm certainly not Charles Manson or Adolf Hitler. She said, but again, how do you know? Where is it written? Did God tell you this? I had no answer for her. And then she said, believe in Jesus. This is what it's all about. Now, verses 10 through 13. Jesus begins to speak again, and he says to Nicodemus, Are you the teacher? And, and Jesus is a little bit snarky and sarcastic here. Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? He's kind of he's poking him a little bit here. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Here's what Jesus is saying. Look at what's been going on with us, with the disciples and with the miracles, that whole wine thing. That was kind of cool, wasn't it? Okay, look what's been going on with us, and yet when we speak, you don't believe us. What's it going to take? You have all this worldly stuff, we've got this heavenly stuff, and yet you won't receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one ascended to, into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. That little phrase right there, the Son of Man, that is Jesus' way of saying, I'm God. Because in the, in the Old Testament book of Daniel, that is what Daniel, uh, the, the name that Daniel ascribed for the Messiah. So right there, Jesus just looked Nicodemus in the eye, the professional religious person, and he said, I'm God. You're speaking to God. So Jesus is a bit snarky here, and it's interesting. Jesus finally has a perp who is interested, humble, and teachable, and he starts slipping him the stick. He starts poking him. He's giving him some jazz. But in this culture, one of the things that we need to understand is that it was normal for friends, for students and teachers, for colleagues, and even adversaries to have this kind of conversation. And, and although it appeared a little bit uncivil, it wasn't considered uncivil at all. Uh, Jesus is not being offensive. He's simply challenging Nicodemus. He's not being uncivil. He is simply pushing him. 
And in fact, I would just stop here and make a comment about our own discipling relationships in this room. If you're one of those people who has been walking with Jesus for a number of years and you get all of this, this is, this is all just review for you, you're somebody who has matured somewhat in your, in your um, faith in Christ. And that means that really one of the things that you should be doing is you should be having a discipling relationship or many discipling relationships with other people who are not as far along as you are. And in those discipling relationships, and I know there are many that go on in this faith community, and that's good, but in these discipling relationships, I think that sometimes uh, many of us have gotten this idea that the idea of the discipling relationship is only to affirm, confirm, encourage, to love, and to be supportive. And all of that is true, but also good and growing discipling relationships also involve an element of this. It involves pushing, prodding, challenging, asking tough questions. When I was first dating Jackie and I was seriously trying to understand who Jesus was, if all Jackie ever did was say, yeah, you'll be fine, yes, you're wonderful, yes, everything you think is true, if that's all she ever did and she never challenged me, I never would have been able to grow in my faith. It's important that we also challenge people in these um, discipling relationships. And in the case of Nicodemus, the most challenging thing that he heard from Jesus was, in fact, that last little part of verse 13 where Jesus says, hey, Nicodemus, guess what? You've been looking for God. You've been trying to find God. You want to know God. You're talking to God right now. You can trust me. You can listen to me. And you can count on what I have to say. Now, before we get to those payoff verses, you know, verses 16 and 17, there's one little thing that we need to deal with, and we should spend a little bit of time on it. It's important for us to understand this, and that would be verses 14 and 15. Jesus just says, the Son of Man, and then he says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, again, I will tell you that if you're new to this and you're reading this and if you have no understanding of the Old Testament and you have no idea who this Moses guy is and you don't know anything about reptiles as I did when I was 27 years old, you're reading this and you're saying, what in the wide world of sports is Jesus talking about? But what you need to understand is that Nicodemus knew exactly what he was talking about. But for me, it was really tough for a long time. I, I would go through, people would say all the time, you're a new Christian, you need to learn John chapter 3. Read John chapter 3. So I'd go and read it, and I'd go, yeah, that's good, I like that, believe in Jesus, okay, I'm not going to per perish. But those verses 14 and 15, I don't get those. So about three years into this deal, I was with a guy named Ed, and it was a discipling relationship. Ed was the discipler, I was the disciplee, or the disciple, okay? And we're walking through John. We're walking through the book of John once a week, um, uh, and, and we're going verse by verse through this. And about the fifth or sixth week that we met, we went through chapter 3. And we got to verses 14 and 15, and I looked at Ed, because by this time I knew he knew a lot more than I did. And I said, I don't get verses 14 and 15. What is Jesus talking about there? And, and Ed said, I'll tell you what, why don't we go back into the Old Testament and look at the story that Jesus is referencing? And literally, I said to Ed, you can do that? 
he said, yeah, we can. see, here's the problem. I went to North High School, and I was an athlete. I didn't know how to look anything up. Research was hard work. I didn't want to do a lot of hard work, you know. So he says, yeah, let's just go to that book of Numbers. So go to Numbers chapter 21. It's in the Old Testament. It's the fourth book in the Bible. Numbers chapter 21. And we will see the story that Jesus is referencing here. And what we need to understand is that everybody standing there when they heard Jesus say this, they would have gotten it like that because they were all experts in the Old Testament, unlike me at the time. So they would have gotten it right away. So here's the story that Jesus is referencing. This is after the people of Israel have been held captive for 400 years by the Egyptians. And they've been praying fervently for hundreds of years. God, please take us out of Egypt. We'll do anything. We're sick of being in bondage in Egypt. We hate it here. We'll go anywhere. We'll do anything. Please, 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 God, take us out of Egypt. So God miraculously takes them out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses and now they're unhappy with being out of Egypt. Have you ever done that? You've prayed to God. Would God, would you do this for me? And then he does it for you, and now you're kind of going, ah, I'd rather it went back to the other way. Well, this happens to the Israelites, and here, here they are right here, starting with verse 4. From Mount Or, they set out by the, way, by, by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. They didn't want to hang out with the Edomites. And the people became impatient along the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out, up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. I love that verse. For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Wait a minute, I thought there wasn't any food. You see how, you see how we are as people? We ask God for something, he gives it to us, and then we start uh, exaggerating and making all these false claims, they're doing the same thing. Verse 6, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and, sinned, and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take the, uh, away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Now, I like this verse too, and here's why. And I'm as guilty of this as, in fact, more guilty of this than anybody in this room. Imagine if the consequence of our sin, every single time you and I sinned, imagine if the consequence of that sin happened just like that. Instead of in his grace and in his patience, God keeps the consequence of sin from happening to us very often for a very long time. What if every time we sinned, it happened like this? Would we not grow closer to God? Would we not maybe sin less? This is exactly what happens here. The minute they started dying because they spoke against God and against Moses, the minute they started dying, they were like, ah, ah, we're, we're sorry. Sorry, God. Is there anything we can do? So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, now you know the story. The people of God have sinned against God, and, and they begin to die as a result of it. God says to Moses, raise up this bronze serpent on a pole, and anybody who looks at the serpent will live in spite of their sin. Okay? 
So Jesus, I know it sounds strange, but he's comparing himself in the story to the serpent on the pole. See, what Jesus is doing with Nicodemus is he's taking something that Nicodemus knows, the idea of the serpent on the pole, and he's using that as an illustration to help Nicodemus know about something that he needs to know. He's taking what Nicodemus knows in order to teach him something that he needs to know. And what he's saying is that in this way that people looked at the serpent, if you look at me, you will live eternally. So here you go. The people were saved from death by looking at the serpent in a similar way. If you look at and believe in Jesus, you will be saved eternally. So he's just making this comparison to help people understand who he is. So here's another way of looking at it. The people were snake bit by sin, just like you and I are snake bit by sin. There's nothing that we can do about our sin. And so in his love and grace and mercy, God sends the solution to our sin. That's the story of Jesus. He is the solution to our sin. He's the deliverer for us from our sin. That's the whole story of Jesus. And now we get to that payoff verse. It is verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world. We need to understand that God's motivation and methodology were all derived from his love for us, nothing that we have done for him. His motivation for his son dying on the cross and his methodology, his son dying on the cross, all of it is coming out of his love for us. And all he's saying is you just need to believe in that. You need to see that, accept it, and believe it. And one of the problems that we have with this idea of believing or having faith is that we think that in order to believe, it means we have to do something. It's really not about doing something. Believing is more about accepting something than it is believing something. Believing is more about accepting something than doing something. And if you accept it, you also understand that it's not a one and done either. When you begin to accept what Jesus has done for you, you begin to realize that it's something that you ha- it's a process that you have to go through every single day. I have bouts with belief and faith and doubt every single day as I go through my life. And it's always amazing to me how God works and then he doesn't work and then he works and he works and he works and he doesn't work. And so it's this continuous journey. Believing is not a one and done. It's something that you have to go through this process your entire life. And and it's kind of on a continuum. If you were to chart, uh, like for instance, my faith, my belief, my trust in God, it would start way down here, left and down in the corner. And over the years, it has gone up and to the right, but I would tell you that it has been a herky-jerky motion. It's been up and down. It's been all over the map. Ultimately, it's going up and to the right, but there are seasons in life when it, when it really struggles. A- and all of us are at different places on that continuum. I'm up here right now at the age of 53 teaching on John chapter 3, verse 16. Let me tell you about my very first encounter with John chapter 3, 16. You will see what it was like for me to be way down here at the bottom in the left on this graph. Uh, Jackie and I, uh, my wife, were just getting involved in this romantic relationship. Uh, We had met when I was 26. 
Uh, we had known each other for about 18 months. Uh, she had broken up with this loser guy that she had been going out with, and I decided to make my move. And, and so I, I, when I went to her, I said, listen, I, I know that you're a Christian or whatever that is, and you go to this church and all this stuff, and I'm not. I've never been, and I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm interested, but I am interested in you. And so uh, I want to know, are you interested in dating me? And she said, well, yes, but you have to understand, you're the first non-Christian guy I will have ever dated. And I said, I recognize that. I know that's a problem. So I realize that part of this relationship is going to be that I need to actually go to church with you. So instead of dating, why don't we start our relationship where I just go to church with you? And she was going to that big old honking church on Central and, uh, and uh, Bethany Home, um, uh, North Phoenix Baptist Church. At the t- that's a pretty intimidating place for a brand new person who's never been in church, right? And at that time, there were literally 10,000 people attending that church uh, on three different um, uh, service times. But I agreed to do that with her, okay? And so it was our first Sunday. We had gone to church. I had clung to her like a little boy in my first day at school because I didn't want to get accosted by any of those Jesus freaks at North Phoenix Baptist Church. I just wanted them to leave me alone. But I made it through my first Sunday church experience with her, and it was okay. A lot of singing and stuff, you know. And, and, then, and then the good part of the day, you know, if you're, a good, if you're a good Southern Baptist, you always go to lunch after church on Sunday. That was good. So we went and we had Mexican food, and it was really good because her father, her father paid, okay? So that was helpful, okay? And then a part of the deal was because I went to church with her Sunday morning, and then we went to lunch together. What do you do? At, and by the way, this is November now. What do you do after church and lunch on a Sunday? You watch football. That's it. You, you go home and you watch the NFL. So now we're at my house and we're watching, well, I'm watching the NFL and she's pretending to watch. Anyway, so the camera pans the audience. And there's one of those guys holding up a sign in the stands. And what does the sign say? John 3.16. So um, I've seen this my whole life, never understood why anybody in the middle of a football game would hold up a sign that says John 3.16. So now I've got my chance. I'm pretty sure that John 3.16 is a Bible verse, okay? And I've got me a Christian sitting right here. So now I can ask this question. I say, ah, look at that, look at that, Jackie, look. She says, yeah, what about it? Why would a guy in the middle of a football game be holding up a sign that says John 3.16? Why would he be doing that? And she said, well, here's why he would be doing that. He's kind of hoping that maybe somebody like you or somebody else who doesn't believe, isn't a follower of Jesus, would see that sign. They would go and find a Bible somewhere and they would look up John 3.16 and they would read about how Jesus died for your sins and they would accept Jesus and become a follower of Jesus. That's what he's doing. He's trying to get you to believe in Jesus. And I said, no, that's not what he's doing. There is no pick and way. This guy paid $50 for this, for this ticket and is holding up a John 3.16 sign. This must have something to do with the game. There must be something in that verse, that John 3.16 verse, that has something to do with football. Get me a Bible. Uh, we were at my house. We didn't have a Bible. I said, get me a Bible. Do you have a Bible somewhere? And, and, you know, again, she's a Southern Baptist girl, so she's got this little clutch bag, and somehow she pulled a credenza Bible out of her clutch bag. It was a big Bible. It was big. It was like folded up all special. Wham! You know, here it is, okay? All right, John 3.16. Where's the table of contents? I don't know. She knew exactly where to go. Okay, it's the fourth gospel, Frank. What's a gospel? I don't even know what that is, you know? So we're looking, get to it. So I read it. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And I read it. I read it again, and I said, okay, here's, here's, here's what it is. I'm telling you, it's about football. The key word in that verse is believes. What this guy is saying is that if you really believe in your team, if you really have faith in your team, if we just believe that the Pittsburgh Steelers can beat the Denver Broncos, if we have enough faith, they will win. And if they win, they will have everlasting life in the playoffs all the way to the Super Bowl and will not perish. That's what the guy is trying to say to all of those people. you got to believe in your team. That's what he's saying, Jackie. Jackie had pretty much the same reaction that you guys are having to me right now. I mean, I know this is stupid on so many levels. That's my original understanding of John 3.16. And Jackie said... Hang in there, man. You're wrong, but God is working on your heart, and he's doing it because that guy held up that sign, and you responded to it. You're at the beginning of the journey. And here I am, whatever it is, 20, what's 27 from 50? I went to North High School, 27 from 53. 26 years later, I am up here teaching on John 3, 16. So it, this belief thing is a continuum. And that's what Nicodemus is going to have to go through. And this idea of uh, this, this word perish literally means loss or separation, okay? So in other words, uh, when, if you don't believe you're going to perish, it means you're going to be separated for eternity from God. That's what it means. Now, I want you to think about this as well. This is really important too. All of us, whether we're believers in Jesus or not, all of us have an image of what hell is like, Okay? Even if you don't believe in hell, you have this image. And it usually includes fire, gnashing of teeth, ragged clothing, and nonstop American Idol reruns. That's essentially our image of hell, okay? All right? Now, some of, the, some of that we get from the Bible, not the American Idol thing, but some of that we get from the Bible. But I would suggest to you, here's what hell really is. Hell is the absolute and eternal absence of the presence of God from your life. That's what hell is. Now think about the world we live in today. It's pretty bad, right? Violence, sin, all kinds of bad stuff. Do you understand that this world is not as bad as it could be if God just simply removed his, his presence? There's this thing called common grace that is kind of, sort of, holding this whole thing together. Just stop and imagine what it would be like if we were completely devoid of God's presence. That's hell. It is the eternal and absolute absence of God from your life. That's got to be bad. Jesus says in John 28, uh, chapter 10, verse 28, the people who believe in me, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. In other words, if you believe in Jesus, you will have the eternal and absolute presence of God forever and ever and ever. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Do you understand that God did this with Jesus, not because he hates us, but because he loves us? His whole motivation for this was love. He didn't do this to condemn the world. He did this to save the world. And verse 18, 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. It's been said of this verse that we are not, as human beings, we are not as bad as we could be, but we are as bad off as we could be. Because if we perish, if we die without knowing Jesus, we will be eternally separated from God. And and this is um, really, really important to understand. The difference between the one who believes and the one who perishes is not their guilt or innocence. The difference between the one who believes and the one who perishes is not their guilt or innocence, but rather it is their attitude towards Jesus and sin. That's the only difference. So what needs to be done? Well, Paul tells us very simply in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. He says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. So we have to believe, that's the internal, and confess. That's the outward manifestation of the truth and the reality of what's happened inside of us. It's, It's the fruit of living with Jesus, and we need to have them both, the internal belief and the outward fruit which manifests itself because of that belief. And, and, and again, let me just give you one example of how this outward manifestation of the power of God in us when we believe actually works. Again, I mentioned that I, I met Jackie at, when I was 26 and started to get to know her. And um, we became very good friends, and, and I was interested from the very beginning, but she had that other guy running around, and that was a problem. And, and um, so I waited and hoped and then it happened. They split up. And it was a Seinfeld episode before Seinfeld ever came around. I actually sat around and thought, what's the grace period after somebody, br-? and I decided it's like five minutes, and I went right at it, okay? She's crying and everything. I'm going, well, I can help you feel better, okay? So we went and had this conversation. Now, I was 27 at that time. I'd had lots of experience with women up until that point. And I will tell you, this, uh, this, is, this may be too transparent for some of you, but I want you to see how the power of God can work in a life. My relationship with women up until that point essentially went like this. I would meet a woman. I would think she's the greatest thing that ever happened. She is the one. And within six months, I would realize that she's not the one. I don't like her anymore. I don't want to be around her anymore. In my wake were all of these broken relationships with women who at one time I thought was the one. So I meet Jackie, and, and Jackie really is special, okay? She is special, but she's really no different than any of the other women I ever dated. The only difference between Jackie's relationship with me and my relationship with all these other women is that I became a Christian when I was with Jackie, And Jackie's the only woman I have ever been with when I have lived with the power of the Holy Spirit in me. And I will tell you that Jackie is the only woman I have ever had in my life where I never thought to myself, she's not the one anymore. I need to go and look elsewhere. That's not me. I'm telling you. That is not me. That's the power of Christ in me through belief And now confession or the living out of that power. This is his fruit in my life, not my fruit. And it doesn't just apply to romantic relationships. It applies to everything. It applies to how I conduct myself in business affairs. 
It applies to how I conduct myself with my family. I, I have never had a stronger relationship with my parents than since becoming a Christian. Because before that, it was all about me. And now Jesus has taught me that it's different. So what do we do as a result of this? What's the so what, Frank? Four things. Believe, accept who Jesus is and what he did and that he lived a perfect life and live your life accordingly. And then confess that, declare it. Admit that he's the Lord of your life, the leader of your life, the one that you will follow and submit to. Repent, just like they did in Numbers 21, repent of your sin. Go to God and say, I admit it, I'm a sinner and I fall short, I've missed the mark. And then humbly submit yourself to him. And if you're one of those people that's at the very beginning of this or you don't even believe it yet, but you have some questions, I would suggest that you ask the person that brought you today, that invited you, talk to them. Or if you came alone, you just happened to wander in here, maybe God's working in your life, but you need to talk to somebody. There's going to be a bunch of guys standing here at the end of the service. You can come and talk to them. Maybe some of you will decide that it's time to get baptized, to actually confess your faith in Jesus. You could fill out a connect card and ask a pastor from this church to contact you to have that conversation. Not so that we can nail you and get another notch in our belt, but so that you can have somebody to have this conversation with. All of those things I would suggest are possible that you could do. Let me conclude this series by saying this. We have studied very intently who Jesus really is according to the scriptures. And some people say that Jesus is a really good teacher, and I would say, yes, he is a good teacher. Some people say that Jesus is a really good moral example, and I would say, yes, he's a really good moral example. And some people would say that Jesus was a wonderful difference maker, and I would say, yes, Jesus is a wonderful difference maker, but he is, he is more than just those things. You think about this series, here are all the things that Jesus is. He is Messiah, King, Lord, God, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the Almighty, the bread of life, the truth, the chief shepherd, the cornerstone, the friend of sinners. He's the way. He's a wonderful counselor. He is deliverer, redeemer, forgiver, sustainer. He's the Lamb of God. He is love. He is the word. He is master. He is the bright morning star. He's the light of the world. He is our high priest, our solid rock, our sacrifice, our advocate, our savior, Jesus is the one. Let's pray together and we'll have our response time. God, thank you for sending your son, for making that sacrifice on our behalf because of your love for us. Thank you for forgiving us and reconciling us to you. God, give us the, the courage to understand that and, and the eyes to see that and help us to believe that and live in light of that. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. You stand with us as we enter into our time of response. So sweet to trust in Jesus and to take him at his word. 
just to rest upon his promise and to know the saith the Lord. Oh, 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 oh. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him more and more. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more and more and more. 